Hello and welcome to the Anishinaabe History Podcast. I'm Chris Waite. This episode was inspired by the students of Brunswick House First Nation. Be nice to your teachers and read lots of books. In the middle of the 1800s, a man had a vision of Anishinaabe education for the future. He worked hard to make that vision a reality. The man's name was Shingwak, which in English means pine or pine tree. I've seen the word spelt J-I-N-G-W-A-K, which is a J instead of an S-H. And I've seen the word spelled Z-H-I-N-G-W-A-A-K. These different spellings indicated different dialects and different authors of dictionaries from different time periods and locations. In this episode, I'll keep the spelling of Shingwak, S-H-I-N-G-W-A-U-K, as used in one of the books I used for this episode. It's entitled Shingwak's Vision, A History of Native Residential Schools by J.R. Miller. The man named Shingwak envisioned what he called a teaching wigwam. He saw the material success of European civilization and concluded that educating Nishnabe children in a formalized setting would likewise be beneficial to Anishinaabe communities. Traditionally, Anishinaabe people did not have a formal, state-run education system. Instead, traditional methods of teaching would be interwoven into daily activities undertaken routinely by children. J.R. Miller summarizes it in the following way, quote, Not all societies have schools, but all human communities possess educational systems. This is so because education, as distinct from schooling, has clear purposes whose achievement is essential for any collectivity to survive and to prosper. Education aims, first, to explain to the individual members of a community who they are, who their people are, and how they relate to other peoples and to the physical world about them. Normally, these themes involve some understanding of the genesis of individuals and the world they inhabit, the origins and attainments of the collectivity to which they belong, the rules governing the behavior of human beings and other life forms, and ultimately the purpose of the existence of individuals, collectivities, and the created world. Second, an educational system seeks to train young people in the skills they will need to be successful and productive members of their bands, city-states, countries, or empires in later life. These skills include an ability to procreate and preserve the community, to sustain the group's life through provision of foodstuffs and other material things, to answer questions of everyday life and allay anxieties, and finally to defend the group against external threats, whether from different human communities or other sources. When all is said and done, all human congregations educate their young because instruction is essential to their developing into properly socialized adults who will share the collectivity's values, provide for its needs, and defend its existence. Education, whether acquired through the relatively modern mechanism of schooling or otherwise, aims to accomplish these objectives. End quote. Knowledge and its attainment through structured education is what makes us sentient beings. Humans are capable of learning. We are capable of learning anything. There is an axiom that states, 
You can achieve anything you put your mind to. It's true, but a deeper question is, what exactly are you going to put your mind to? Success stems from effort. But again, the question should be raised, effort at what? What does it mean to learn? The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines learn as to gain knowledge or understanding of or skill in by study, instruction, or experience, as well as to acquire knowledge or skill or a behavioral tendency. In other words, learning doesn't require a brick-and-mortar school. When did humans start using formalized classrooms for the instruction of children? It wasn't something that happened overnight. Formalized public school was an idea that developed into civilization over many generations. For instance, in the Middle Kingdom period of ancient Egypt, royal children had tutors, but mostly everyone else learned from their parents. Jobs in ancient Egypt were inherited from parents, and learning the job began in childhood. Indeed, it was expected that a father, for example, would initiate his son into his trade or profession. The son, in time, would become the replacement for the elder worker. Scribes and sculptors had to be literate, and so they were taught literacy. In the New Kingdom period of ancient Egypt, there were two schools, presumably for the children of workmen in Thebes. In other words, as the need for skilled workers for the future increased, the need for formalized education for the children of present-day workers was realized. That was about 4,000 years ago. In ancient Sumer, from about 6,000 years ago to 4,000 years ago, there was a proverb that stated, He who would excel in the school of scribes must rise with the dawn. In the ancient Babylonian Empire, from about 4,000 years ago to 3,000 years ago, there were libraries in most towns. There were lawyers, secretaries, and scribes in ancient Babylon and Sumeria at least 4,000 years ago. They all had to be educated formally in a standardized way. This was so that the empire could be managed from a centralized government. So, over thousands of years, as the needs for society changed, the need to educate children and prepare them for the future they would inherit became more and more apparent. An empire needs to be organized, and smart people are good at organizing. In the modern world, most of the planet utilizes what can be called the Western model of education. The Western model stems from the ancient civilizations mentioned earlier. The Hebrew Torah, perhaps from about 2,500 years ago, extols the teaching of the Torah, which requires literacy. The teaching of the Torah is encouraged to begin in childhood, about when the child first learns to speak. What about the Romans? Their civilization existed around the same time as the end of the ancient Egyptian dynasties and after the Greeks and Persians. The Romans placed high value on formal education, and by high value I mean that it wasn't free. Wealthy families could send their boys to schools. Girls from poor families, or slaves, generally were not educated. Wealthy girls were taught how to manage a household. 
for the boy in the school, bad behavior and wrong answers would likely be met with a thrashing as fear and violence were used as teaching methods. Quintilian, a Roman teacher from the first century A.D., stated, quote, The teacher must decide how to deal with his pupil. Some boys are lazy unless forced to work. Others do not like being controlled. Some will respond to fear, but others are paralyzed by it. Give me a boy who is encouraged by praise, delighted by success, and ready to weep over failure. Such a boy must be encouraged by appeals to his ambitions. End quote. A couple of centuries prior to that teacher making that comment, the Roman Caesar Julius had invaded the lands of the Celts. The word Celt comes from the Greek word Keltoi, which is what the Greeks called the people who lived a long way off. By the time the Romans invaded Gaul, which is nowadays the region of France, the word Celt was already in use to describe the various Gallic peoples. Indeed, the word Galatians in the Christian Bible refers to Gauls who invaded the area near Macedonia about 300 years before the birth of Jesus. In my opinion, the word Celtic parallels the use of the word Indian to describe the many indigenous nations of what are now called North, Central, and South America. From the Roman point of view, the Celts were less civilized and therefore required civilizing. There were many military expeditions undertaken by the Romans against the Celts. The clash of Northern and Southern European cultures went on for centuries. That's why there are amphitheaters in Britain and why the French language developed from Latin and German. Paris is so named for the Gaulish people who lived in the area prior to Roman envelopment. The Celts, also like many indigenous North American cultures, didn't have formal, publicly funded education for their children. But they did have merchants, artisans, chariots, war leaders, kings, druids, and even surgeons. In other words, the Celts may not have had publicly funded education centers, but they did have methods of learning. Druids, for instance, were said to spend many years learning their specialized knowledge. The Druids were the keepers of the ancient Celtic knowledge. The word Druid comes from the root words meaning tree and wisdom. Some sources say up to 20 years could be spent learning how to become a Druid. A lot of that knowledge has been lost because the Druids were opposed to writing down their esoteric knowledge. Those methods of learning were severely interrupted by the influx of Roman legions and ideas. On top of that, over the next thousand years, Europe would undergo another ubiquitous cultural change. Christianity
About 2,000 years ago, in the first century AD, Christianity was still in southeastern Europe, in places like Galatia, Thessaly, and Greece. A few decades later, but still in the first century AD, the Christian message had moved westward and was now in Rome. In the year 301 AD, Armenia was the first nation in the world to adopt Christianity as its state religion. Armenia is in the eastern part of Europe, bordering on the Asian continent, not too far from Galatia and Turkey. Incidentally, the AD after the date comes from the Latin phrase Anno Domini, which translates into English as in the year of the Lord. Around this time, the ancient Roman Republic had been transformed into the Roman Empire. The difference between a republic and an empire is leadership. A republic is led by the people, hence public. An empire is led by an emperor, a single person, usually a man. The Romans, as a matter of fact, were fond of assassinations and civil wars. However, in the year 380 AD, the Roman Empire made Christianity its official state religion. Thus, via the Romans, Christianity was spread as far afield as Asia Minor, North Africa, and the British Isles. Then another thousand years or so passed by. During that millennia, the Roman Empire broke in half. New kingdoms grew out of the old ashes. There were wars for territory all across Europe. After the fall of the Roman Empire, the Catholic Church held a grip on power across much of Europe. This was due in part to constant missionary work by early Christians and to the conversions of kings, and also because of war. There was war because when kings converted to Christianity, their governed populations were likewise converted to Christianity, whether they wanted to be or not. Emperor Charlemagne is an example. Charlemagne lived around 800 AD. His lifelong goal was to unite Europe under his banner and convert everybody to Christianity. He accomplished his goal through combat and warfare. He wasn't a missionary, he was a military strategist. A few hundred years after that, as the year 1492 came around when Christopher Columbus sailed to the New World, Europe had already had many millennia of religious, political, and technological changes that had come from places as far away as Africa, India, and China. But was there public education for children in those places and times? It was long after the fall of the Roman Empire that children began to have human rights. When did public education begin in Canada? By at least the 1700s in New France, there were arguments for and against free public education for children. But before schools could be built, a province had to be created and recognized. This came in 1774, when the Quebec Act defined an area along part of the St. Lawrence River. Prior to the Quebec Act, this area was occupied by colonists living under the Royal Proclamation of 1763. Religion, politics, and money were at the root of the beginnings of Quebec. The colonists, fur traders, military personnel, and anyone within the Dominion for that matter, had to obey clearly defined laws enacted by the government in power. Historian Hilda Neatby wrote of the Quebec Act the following, quote, 
The union of these areas in 1774 did two things. It introduced a new and controversial form of colonial government into the St. Lawrence Valley, and it laid down a new policy for the Ohio country, a subject of contention between Britain and the other American colonies for the past 20 years. These two things were done at a time when the taxation controversy with the American colonies was about to culminate in open rebellion. An act of such a kind, passed at such a time, and applying to such territory, could not be seen merely as the clearing away of unfinished business in the St. Lawrence Valley. It was imperial legislation, dealing with a difficult imperial problem at a time of crisis in imperial relations. The act, moreover, was drafted in close consultation with Guy Carleton, in accordance with the plans formulated by him during his administration of Quebec. Plans formulated, quite frankly, with a view to military action on the continent, as well as to defense against a French invasion. End quote. Britain, France, the various First Nations, and then the Americans all claimed personal rights of freedom and land use. There were battles and there were treaties. Many of these happened relatively quickly over the course of a few decades. For instance, the Royal Proclamation was in 1763. This was the same year that Odawa Chief Pontiac rose up against Britain and its policies following the so-called French and Indian War. The French and Indian War ended in 1763 after a decade of fighting. Pontiac's War ended in 1766. The Quebec Act was in 1774. The United States of America claimed independence from Britain in 1776, and then in 1783, at the end of the American Revolution, the Treaty of Paris was signed. It is important to know about the Treaty of Paris. The Treaty of Paris redrew maps and created new national and political boundaries. The Treaty of Paris was signed without any First Nations signatories, however. Indeed, at the time of the signing, in 1783, Aboriginal leaders, who had been faithful allies to British, French, and American militaries in previous decades, were now being betrayed by being left out of the Paris Treaty. Historian Hilda Neatby wrote the following about the treaty. Quote, the treaty, signed in Paris on September 3, 1783, gave to Quebec yet another boundary line, the third since 1760. The inevitable retention by Britain of the Newfoundland and Gulf fisheries, with certain fishing rights continued to Americans, was the beginning of a century of dispute and negotiation. It also required nearly a century to complete and define the land boundary sketched in the treaty. Starting from the northwest angle of Nova Scotia, this hypothetical line found its way to the 45th parallel and along the parallel to the St. Lawrence River, some little way above its junction with the Ottawa. From there the line went west along the river and through the center of the Great Lakes to Grand Portage. End quote. Much of the area mentioned is Anishinaabe territory. 
It is important to know that much of it was unceded territory at the time of the signing of the Treaty of Paris. In other words, the land didn't belong to the colonial signatories. The British signed the treaty with the Americans because they could no longer sustain a war. Americans were willing and able to occupy the land they were fighting for. Britain, on the other hand, was losing money protecting forts. Ultimately, the British Empire wanted money, so they signed the Treaty of Paris believing that all the people of the colonies, natives and Europeans, would end up buying English merchandise anyway. But this was a narrow view. To some of the people actually living in the area defined by the treaty, the British land surrender to the Americans was in no way helpful. Hilda Neatby has summed up the feelings of the treaty thusly, quote, to Governor Haldimand and the officers upcountry, this was a narrow and selfish view which ignorance alone could excuse. Britain could not thus unilaterally repudiate her treaty with the Indians who had been faithful, if somewhat costly, allies during the war. The Indians themselves, as the news of the treaty leaked through, indignantly maintained that they were allies, not subjects. They had never ceded land to anyone. If the English, without consulting them, had given their land to the Americans, they had committed an act of injustice and cruelty that only Christians were capable of. It fell to the reluctant Haldimand and his officers to tell them that this was exactly what the English had done, and that they could no longer look to the English king for help, but must make their peace with the United States of America." End quote. The point to remember here is that the royal proclamation had already indicated that indigenous peoples were independent and sovereign peoples. And yet, within a few decades, despite native peoples being allies for all sides during these European conflicts in the New World, native peoples were purposefully left out of the important treaties that nonetheless impacted them and their ways of living. These impacts would last for centuries to come. The Quebec Act of 1774 carved out a geographic region for legal and mercantile purposes. Americans fought for freedom against British colonialism in 1776, but the Indians, according to the colonists, had to be colonized. The notion that the savage needs to be saved by the civilized has thus persisted in generally held views of society for about 250 years. It is the persistence of these archaic notions and the continuing policies still predicated upon the aforementioned outdated and outmoded stereotypes that create problems even now in the 21st century. The Maritime's lobster industry is one example. Caledonia is another example. Likewise, many pipelines such as Keystone, Enbridge's Lines 3 and 5, and Coastal Link LNG all go through Aboriginal territory. Much of the land expected to be used by these corporations is actually unsurrendered First Nations territory. But I have my doubts about these facts actually being taught in any schools as part of their curricula. Maybe someday. But I digress. So, after the creation of the United States of America as well as the demarcation of the boundaries of Quebec along the St. Lawrence, colonial governments pushed further into the continent. 
This did not only include resource extraction, but also ideological assimilation. In other words, it was thought by the colonial powers, with their organized military might, that the uncivilized tribes of the world had to be brought into the fold of the European Commonwealth, whether or not it was a good idea. Thus, Quebec became the de facto hub of culture for the newly born Canadian colony. At the time, Canada wasn't yet officially Canada. That real estate venture wouldn't occur for almost another hundred years, but the wheels were already in motion. Although Quebec was the de facto hub of the North, it was hardly the cultural capital of the world. In fact, Chief Justice Smith of New York, after spending a year in Quebec, described the political and intellectual environment as, quote, the darkest corner of the Dominion, end quote. What was education like for children in the first half of the 19th century? It was heavily influenced by Christianity and colonialism. Basically, in the 1800s, it was a truism that industrialization, Christianization, education, and financial wealth were all increasing rapidly. So, in 1832, when Chief Xingwak talked to representatives of the king, he saw a European package of Christianity, education, and prosperity, and declared that he wanted a teaching wigwam for his people. In his mind, Chief Xingwak considered the parts of the European package to be inseparable. To him, education and Christianity went hand-in-hand hand down the road of prosperity. It was this that he had wanted for his people. Xingwak was an advocate for both Christianity and for education, thinking that they were the way for his people to live a good life, or mino pimatesuin. In his naivety, however, he did not realize that there were many denominations of Christians and that religion, state, and education were not as neatly tied together as it superficially seemed. For instance, he didn't know that the different denominations were a big deal to many Europeans. Shingwak believed that there should only be one Christianity. In his case, he figured that the Church of England, to which the Queen of England belonged, should be the only Christianity that Christians follow. At a meeting where he was trying to fundraise to educate Ojibwe people in the European way, Chief Shingwak unexpectedly gave offense. J.R. Miller writes, quote, At another evening meeting at a crowded teaching wigwam, Chief Shingwak unwittingly gave offense by mentioning that he belonged to the Queen's Church and suggesting that if his audience were wise, they would be members of that church also. One man, a Scotchman, according to Shingwak's host, did not like me saying in my speech that I thought people were not doing right unless they belonged to the Queen's Church. He thought I ought to love all Christians alike. The objection mystified the Ojibwe. Is it not true that the English religion is good? 
Do you think the Queen does wrong in belonging to the Church of England? Why do you fly the Queen's flag from the top of your prayer wigwams and yet refuse to join her in her worship? I feel ashamed of you. End quote. And so Chief Shingwak made his voice heard. My feeling on the matter is that Chief Shingwak wasn't aware of the embroidered history of European geopolitics and religious thought. I think, too, that Chief Chingwok didn't have a lot of knowledge about the history between England and Scotland either. For example, Anglicanism, which has its roots in the Church of England, began in England, hence the name. Although Christianity as a general religion had been in England by at least the late 6th century, the Church of England proper has as its official establishment the year 1534, a thousand years after the introduction of the religion. Thus, it can be argued that Anglicanism began under the command of Henry VIII, who was a king of England during the 16th century. Henry wanted to be the head of his own church, like the Pope is the head of the Catholic Church. So the Latin prayers were translated and written into the English Book of Common Prayer in 1549. Now, Hundreds of years after the reformation of the Christian church system, we have Anglican as well as other denominations of Christian churches on Indian reservations. Other reformationist Christian sub-religions followed similar paths of establishment. Christianity itself underwent another metamorphosis in the 18th and 19th centuries. This change is referred to as the Evangelical Revival. The evangelical revival came about because, at the time, England was a cesspool of depravity and immorality, despite the many churches across the land. England of the 1700s had the slave trade, child labor, no public education, public executions, and appalling public health. Some Christians of the day thought that the moral vacuum of England, including within the churches themselves, was abhorrent so they sought to make changes to the social fabric around them. Through such changes, slowly over time, people began to agree that child labor was immoral, slavery was immoral, public education was socially uplifting, and that helping the poor was a good Christian thing to do. These ideas were revolutionary. But as I said, these ideas had been slow to spread. By the time Chief Shingwak was born, the transatlantic slave trade was already in full operation, and although public education was not yet fully accepted, Chief Shingwak saw that educated people and Christianized people lived what he saw as good lives. Mino Pimatisowin, living a good life. The vision of the teaching wigwam was to be a school that was meant to raise the standard of living for Chief Shingwak's people. What the Indians of North America received instead were the brainwashing camps known as boarding and residential schools. This is because politics has always been that of taking First Nations land use rights away so that the natural resources within the First Nations land itself can be extracted. This is the history of Canada. It is why John A. Macdonald is credited with being the father of Confederation because he promised the investors and stakeholders that he could build a transcontinental railway across the land linking all the colonial settlements. 
he was able to build the railroad through First Nations territory through the wrangling of treaty promises. He didn't own up to the promises made and he got the railroad built. So he made a lot of money for his political and financial backers. As for the Indian cultures he destroyed getting his trains working, well, they had to become civilized anyway. And that's why reservations exist. Reservations were purposefully left out of the developing industrial economics of Canada because Canadians didn't want the competition. Many Aboriginal commercial enterprises after the decline of the fur trade that utilized more modern resources such as timber were initially successful. But after public, i.e. non-native, complaints to Canadian politicians, laws were changed that specifically held back native people from gaining prosperity in natural resource-dependent enterprises. This happened along the west coast of Canada in the timber industry, and it happened along the east coast of Canada with the lobster industry. Around the same time, in the late 1800s, the residential schools began officially, and native children were taken away from their families as part of the continued campaign of colonial dominance. But that is another story. That's all for today's episode. Stay tuned for more episodes in the future. I'm Chris Waite, and this has been the Anishinaabe History Podcast.